Welcome to episode 53 of The Photo Show. And our guest for this episode is the photographer and, and former conflict photographer and photojournalist, John Trotter. Yeah, and uh, we sat down with him this summer and um, had a great uh, talk about a variety of things. And for those of you who follow me on Instagram, you'll notice that uh, probably half my posts are either bicycle related or photography related. And uh, that comes out in this uh, episode because... Uh, right away, I jump into talking to, to John about bicycling and the relationship between uh, being a bicyclist and being out there in the world and looking around and photography and how those things might play off of each other. And uh, one thing that does come up uh, in the episode is a, a triatic uh, event that happened in John's life. And it just so happened that soon after recording this, I met a uh, professional cyclocross bicyclist, uh, Ben Frederick, who uh, had a traumatic brain injury through a bicycle crash. And he talked about how he used both photography and listening to podcasts specifically Mm. as part of the therapy for his recovery from uh, that event, which is now uh, over a year and a half into it. So I I think there's going to be a lot of things in here for for people to pick up on and uh, to think about. That was a pretty strange coincidence. Um, and yes, we uh, we we do we do uh, sound a little bit like the cycling show for a little while, but it, it is all related. And um, you know, I know you you asked John specifically about how how riding his bike is is kind of like walking around and photographing. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely a relationship there. And of course, you know, people who there's also a lot of people who are skateboarders who go into photography. I mean, there's, mm. there's something about that ro- roving out in the world. But speaking of roving out in the world, you've been out uh, going to a couple of events. Why don't you fill us in on that? Yeah. So uh, this past weekend, I was at uh, Photoville. And uh, of course, uh, the Bronx Documentary Center is there. So our, our previous uh, episode guests uh, were there set up with the uh, Bronx Junior Photo League. And if you don't know what that is, please listen to our previous episode. Uh, but they, they're doing some great documentary work. Um, and that was what impressed me about Photoville. Is there, there's really a, quite a bit of good documentary work going on there. Um, I ran Didn't into, you also run into Kathy Shore? I or? was just about to say, I ran into Kathy Shore, <laughs> who was um, sitting at the uh, container. And, and for those of you who don't know, Photoville is a series of container galleries, uh, literally. And uh, she was sitting for a, a, a collective, an organization she's part of called Women Photograph. So it's at Women Photograph on Instagram. And there was some uh, great work being done there. It's all very photojournalist-based and documentary-based work. And of course, all by women and, and some really interesting things going on there. And then right after that, I ran up to Queens to visit with Patrice Helmar, who I had last seen in Alaska. Uh, she's back now, and um, she's putting on this two-week-long event called the Backyard Biennial. I happen to be in the, the slideshow, which will take place in about a week's time next Saturday on September 30th. Um, and there are a lot of uh, actually former guests of the show um, who are uh, either showing their work at the Biennial or in the slideshow. So um, if you uh, go to Facebook and you type in Backyard Biennial in the search box, uh, it will come up along with Patrice Helmar's uh, Facebook page. Uh, and then you can see uh, all the dates and events that are happening between now and next Saturday. Yeah, I think they also had a nice write-up in uh, Art, Art F City, right? Yeah, they're getting some good, very good write-ups. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Good for her. Well, uh, my voice might sound a little uh, different on the recording right now just because I'm out in uh, Los Angeles for the weekend and um, 
you know, when you're when you're walking around New York, you happen to bump into the intersections where you know that uh, you know Gary Winogrand and all these guys were walking around and photographing. But being out here, I was out this morning in Santa Monica, and of course, uh, you know, thinking of uh, those amazing uh, footage of uh, Winogrand walking around photographing along Venice Beach and all of that. Mm. Just uh, I constantly reminded of uh, the way these two cities on either coast have played such a huge part in American photography. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you may have noticed we don't have the usual call quality uh, that, that we normally do, and that's because Kai is uh, standing in a parking lot, I think, or something like that. Yep. I'm sitting in a, I'm sitting in a car outside an Albertson. So for you West Coast people, you'll know what an Albertson's is. So. That's right. All right. Well, Kai, uh, we're looking forward to you coming back, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll get a few more episodes in. Excellent. Look forward to hearing this one with John. Yeah, so um, enjoy the show, everyone, and we'll talk soon. Century ride coming up next Sunday. Oh, uh, where? Which one? It's the transportation alternative. Oh, the, the TA ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's next Sunday, the tenth. I'm gonna be in France. So, oh, good for yeah. you. But uh, yeah, I'm. <laughs> nah, I'd switch with you, but <laughs> that's right. Uh, you know, uh, no, I've I I know a couple people who've done it. I've never done it. Um, have you? Yeah, it's my seventh year of doing it oh, in a row. Wow, I love come doing on. it. Yeah, it's a great ride. And you, just, you, you get do the s- long ride. Yeah, it's yeah. the 100 miles, the yeah. full 100 miles, because you get to see parts of the Bronx that you just never go through otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just a great way to... You get all five boroughs? No, we don't go to Staten Island. Oh, yeah. So That's we, always problem. We get all the real boroughs. I'm sorry. Oh! <laughs> I couldn't resist. Oh, yeah. No, 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 they do, no they d- it's not a New Jersey tour. That's right. right? Exactly. Exactly. That's what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. All right. I'll shade on Michael. All That's right. right. Uh, but no, it's, it's, it's a nice tradition. And, um, and I was trying to, th- I rode my bike up here today. I was thinking about, uh, relationship between bicycling and photography or cycling and photography. And uh, I know that you spent a lot of time on a bike, you know, in, yeah. your, in your early years, which... Uh, I still like do. To, yeah. And so I'd like to talk about that a little bit. I think there's something about maybe about being outside and like being, in, in, you know, looking while you're riding along and thinking about going on these journeys. It must tie in. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do. I, I like riding with people a lot of the time, but I think a lot of the time, um, probably more often than not, just because of, you know, I've got kind of an erratic schedule that I sort of ride when I can make time. And sometimes, you know, it's okay, it's going to happen now or it's not going to happen. And then so you're kind of out there on your own, especially riding in New York City. You know, you've got to be really focused. Mm-hmm. And, and it's and it's and it's an interesting i mean i had i guess i think about it sometimes but about the relationship but you know when you're photographing um i mean you're you're obviously you're sort of looking around you have a general idea you know but you start looking you're kind of looking for something you're and at some point or another even if you're doing a landscape i mean you're still sort of putting your attention 
focusing your attention on one aspect of this thing around you and you're putting it in a, uh, a rectangular frame mm -hmm. and that's what it is. I mean, I think when you're cycling in New York City especially, but really anywhere, but especially here, I mean, you really, you know, you're really engaged. And I think there's, there's something about when I think w w all of us as photographers, when we're, you know, when we know it's sort of happening, the, you know, okay, I feel like I'm, I can make pictures today. Yeah, the um, flow. If you're yeah, in the, the flow. whatever the flow. Yeah. You, I think in cycling, you, you just, you know, if you're going through traffic, you really, you've got to sort of get into that, and almost by, it, by absolutely by necessity, or you're gonna, <laughs> you won't survive. But you know, the, if you want to actually go, the faster you go, the more engaged you have to be. And mm. I, I don't know. I think there's something about that, and you know, long rides by yourself it kind of gives you um, maybe if, if you go across the george washington bridge and uh, ride along the river i mean you're you actually can look around a little bit so being a photographer i mean it's often a very solitary probably not as much as being a writer is a uh, solitary um creative activity but a lot of cycling for me is riding by myself and and thinking about my life and thinking about, you know, what's ahead and, and just being present in, in the world that, where you're living. I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe they, the two are like each other like that. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I th that's what I was thinking about on the way in, the connection. And um, on the one hand, like you said, there's, there's these things of like anticipation, like you have to be aware of your environment to know like, oh, this car might be going to cut me off. Oh, this guy might open up a door and, you know, be a problem. Like being a street photographer. You're exactly. anticipating, right? anticipating what's coming up ahead. And then on the other level, you're, you, you see like, oh, there's a piece of a tiny piece of glass up there, or there's like a rock or there's a thing you are, there's a little uh, a hole in the road. You're also looking at these little micro I have four things. seconds to get through that intersection. Yeah, exactly. All yeah. that stuff. So there, I think that definitely ties in. That's a really good point. Yeah. And being out in the world, I think is just that too, like, and being out by yourself. And even when you just talked about, uh, thinking about going out for a ride. Sometimes you could be at home and go like, oh, it's a nice day. I should go out and photograph. And you're like, er. sometimes there's like a resistance, like uh, that, you know, do you get up and get the momentum going, yeah. right? And then as soon as you get on your bike or as soon as you go out with that camera around your on your shoulder or something, it, you're so grateful that, yeah, you know, you're making it happen. Yeah, it's true. Um, and you do develop a kind of skill where you can sort of, you know, get zoned out a little bit into your own head and yet still maintain a level of awareness that you know allows you to avoid the car door opening or the uh, the pothole yeah. or and things like that and that is like walking around photographing right you know you're out there for a purpose there's a a kind of a, a you, you know there's a being pre being present but it's it's being present with a purpose right you you're on this kind of mission the way you wander around look around but you still get those moments where you can sort of zone out and reflect and and think about all those other things and but you're still there's still that like part of you that's always aware right of what uh what you're looking for yeah yeah you you and you always have to be open to the unexpected mm -hmm. you know yeah. it's part of it all and you know when photography i think more often than not sometimes the unexpected can be a real gift um cycling 
sometimes that's a gift and sometimes it's something to really, you know, try and physically avoid running into. <laughs> 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 that's right and sometimes the photograph is just that obvious too <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes yeah yeah it's, it's like it's and do i take that picture or it's like do i have enough time to get through this intersection yeah uh, you know you got to make a decision and right. make it quickly this last weekend i'm working on a project where i'm photographing airplanes uh, flying through the city mm. and uh i was on my very lightweight like fixed gear bike yeah. or single speed bike it's yeah. actually set up not, as not fixed right now and um so i was waiting and waiting in one spot the plane comes along and then i have the, like the bike all ready to go i like zoom around the corner up and get into the next position yeah. for where the plane's going to be for the <laughs> yeah, next yeah. thing. So I was like, it's like the mobile tripods, like go, you know, wow. I guess I could have so run it. I could have run it, but I was using the bike to like zip back and you forth. You have a little bit more time. Yeah. It was amazing. Right. And then mm-hmm. of course you like stop the bike, settle yourself, get the camera ready. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> so that was fun too. But you had it early in, early in your life, you were a very serious cyclist and, uh, did you, you even, did you go to Europe? Even? Yeah. Yeah. After, yeah. so after high school, I don't know what was up. I, I try and I'm trying to remember where my head was. I, I was in, uh, there was a trajectory. There were a couple of trajectories where in my high school and there were, you know, there were a few, you know, I was, you know, in a, the Missouri Ozarks, you know, and there were some smart kids and they had, they were going to go to, I think one of my classmates went to Princeton, you know, there were, somebody else maybe went to Yale, but mostly people are going to maybe Bible colleges, maybe the state university that was in town, uh, or not going to a lot of them just weren't going to go anywhere mm. and i don't know i i didn't i saw all this and i don't know i wasn't compelled to follow that path right away i didn't quite know i didn't quite know what i wanted to do what direction to go and i i guess i felt like what i don't really want to do is to go to some place feeling like that you know because that's you know, the wheels could fall off and you say, what the hell am I, what was I thinking? Why am no, I'm, now I'm kind of, I moved all my stuff here and I, I hate being here. I don't know, I just didn't, so I wasn't ready. But what I was, <laughs> I guess, ready to do, because I was, I, I was, uh, I don't want to, it's, it's not like uh, the Tour de France or anything, but I was a multiple time state champion as, as, uh, as a junior age and, uh, cyclist and went to the national championships, I don't know, about four times. And, you know, it was pretty good in the Midwest. There were people who were better, for sure. But I was right. You know, I was one of the better ones. And I decided to to find out if I could race my bicycle on a team in France. And at that time, you know, there was it's changed somewhat, but, it, you know, there was this amateur level that they didn't quite have the professional development teams were set up differently but so it was an amateur team and people would leave amateur teams to go straight to pro contracts you know and so it was the next logical yeah, step yeah it was like minor leagues in baseball here and so so you know i was 18 years old and i knew somebody who had raced on this team outside of paris or I, he was a friend of a friend and he wrote a letter of recommendation or i wrote letter and you know and he recommended me they could check with him and and i got this letter back you know with this team stationary you know Ooh. all in french 
And I'd had to have my high school French teacher help me write this letter, you know, and I couldn't believe it. You know, they said, yes, you know, come. And, and I mean, they, there was a whole plan. I mean, I couldn't believe it hmm. at the time. I mean, there was no Internet. There was no way to really do a lot of research about this outside of just talking to people um, who weren't none, – none of them were anywhere near where I lived. So – I went, and I was on this team for half of the year, and I came back. You know, it was really hard. I was 18. I had high school French. No <laughs> one spoke English. No one on wow. the team. Team director didn't speak English. And, you know. L.A., L.A., L.A. <laughs> well, you know, he would speak really loudly to me and kind of in my face so I would understand. And, uh, you know, it's. Um, That's not works. just Americans who do this. <laughs> and uh, I, I was riding with these these two Belgian guys. I would, there were four foreigners on the team, and the two were Belgian guys, and uh, that I would ride with a lot. And, you know, some of the other guys on the team at that age, they were you know mechanics or postmen, or you know d they had regular jobs. They and we were just basically there to ride our bikes, and so they were free during the day to ride and. So I would ride with these guys. I remember my team director, his wife, I mean, he and his wife lived across the street from this little, like, it was a former dairy building, uh, you know, that part of it was abandoned. <laughs> I mean, empty, kind of desolate-looking rooms. And I was I was living on one that was just the other side of desolate. <laughs> it did have a tiny, like, foot-wide little heater in it. <laughs> wallpaper up the wall across the ceiling and down the next wall you know, floral kind of early 20th century wallpaper and and uh but but i remember one day so she kind of pulled me aside and said uh you know she saw me out of my little compound and uh said john they always had trouble saying john you know john <laughs> they didn't have didn't know what to do with h so john <laughs> ton français c'est Plus c'est plus comme un belge, c'est pas bon. So that's John, you're speaking. Your French is more and more like a Belgian. Oh, it's not good. That wasn't good. I, I, was saying, I was saying things that Belgian people did, like septon, you know, for 70, you know, and so 70, you know. Anyway, so it was this, so that I did that. And, and, I, and I came back to ride the, the, the biggest race in America, which I think had, it was either still the last year of the Reds as the Red Zinger, which is a stage race in Colorado, multiple day with international teams in it, or it was the first year as the Coors Classic, you know, went from an herbal Ooh. tea to, you know, <laughs> right wing beer, La Diet beer. Nice. And anyway, so they, but yeah, that, such was the change in America at the time. And, but I, so I was supposed to write for this American team that I had, I'd gotten onto before I went to France. And the team director called from Los Angeles and said, Hey, so I got some good news and bad news for you. Um, okay. You know, I'm like 18 years old. No, was it? Yeah, I was 19 at that point. Yeah, I was old then. And he, and he I said, So what? Bad news first, I guess. What What's the bad news? And he said, well, the team, it was it was the Spanish cycling company, cycle equipment company. So they're bringing over a couple of riders from the home team. So you've been bumped, you know, you're the youngest guy. You've been bumped to first alternate. You know, I came back from France to ride this race, <laughs> you know, and I didn't have money to go back to France. Right. And so I said, 
what's the good news? <laughs> so, oh, no, that did your first alternate. Oh, oh, that was the good oh, news. Oh, that's the good news, too. So it's kind of the same thing. Then. <laughs> Two sides so, of I the same story. I don't story. know. So then I just said, ah, you know, all right, to hell with it. I'm just, I'm just going to go to college. I'm tired of this. So mm. I just, and I just sort of quit. I mean, I wrote a couple, I qualified for the nationals again out of my home state as like the next age group up. And then I just didn't go. And I, Decided to go to the University of Missouri. You know, it was I kind of was didn't want to go to some liberal arts college. I I kind of wanted to be with people that from different places. There were a lot more international students there. There were, I mean, it was pretty crazy to go and move into a dorm, which you had to move into the dorm your first year. And you know, there were kids who had never been away from home ever. And you're coming back from and, living, you know, in like a, living, like right, and you know, and and you were the res- mature adult coming oh my, to college. No, seriously, I, yeah. compared to these kids, it was, <laughs> it was nuts. And I, they, and I've been living in a little room, you know, in a place where it rained every day, and I had to go out and ride my bike. And you know, I have to be. Did you become the dorm RA? No, I wasn't. I didn't want. The, I didn't want anything responsible for these people. No, I ended up. I ended up working as a. Uh, by the end of my first semester, and I hadn't really, it was kind of in my head, maybe I should be going to photography. I kind of decided I wanted to be in, I wanted to go into journalism of some kind, photography maybe. But by the end of the first semester, I was the photo editor of the <laughs> student newspaper. Ah, and this is where we transition from yes. the bike show.org to oh the my God. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that took a long time. A lot of boring. Yeah. No, 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 I don't think it's, that was boring at all. No, I think it, was, it was all on me. I wanted to talk about Plus, that. I think the passions are very similar. I think the, the well, they kept interacting. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. they kept yeah. overlapping over the years and yeah. interacting. And, too, and they're I both. Guess. A little odd things to pursue. I'm, and an, I'm, yeah. I'm not a normal guy. <laughs> I'm not really. But I can. I could definitely. You know, uh, having worked on, uh, been a uh, an advisor to my school newspaper. It, you know, once once someone shows an interest and they have some uh, a little bit of talent, it's uh, please well, <laughs> join what, our paper. Actually, what had happened was the photo editor uh, and some other guy. It was a crazy place. I mean, the the newspaper. It was called the Man Eater. It was the University of Missouri. <laughs> no. You know what? The Uni- Missouri Tigers. So I guess oh. they decided it would be the Maneater. Wow. And Hollenotes. Um, yeah, yeah. Hollenotes, believe me. It came, boy, people. So, but anyway, there was some poster of, you know, like you see on, on the walls around any campus, you know, for some kind of event or, and the photo, <laughs> photo editor and, some other editor, I just remember stepping out of some room, looking down the hallway, I heard this laughter, and they had got a lighter, and they had set this poster on fire on the wall, and were laughing, watching it burn. I mean, and the, the editor-in-chief, in you know, is this kind of stringy-haired, um, I mean, real hard-ass kind of, I mean, he was made to be a journalist, you know, mm-hmm. chain-smoking, coffee-drinking, vibrant-popping. <laughs> Um, probably amphetamine. Right. I've done. He looked out and he said to this guy, you know, his last name is Kudish. Kudish, you're fired. <laughs> and then he looked down and there's this Guamanian guy who went on to win a Pulitzer Prize for photography, Manny Chrysostomo. 
I think for the Detroit Free Press. And he, he was the assistant photo artist. He said, Manny, he said, I quit. <laughs> he said, I don't want it. And he looked down the hallway, and I'm standing there kind of with my mouth open. He said, Trotter, you're the new photo editor. <laughs> so I am. And I, I mean, I didn't want to, I kind of, maybe I should have quit just out of solidarity, but I thought, I don't know. Well, maybe I should just try this. Right. <laughs> and, that, and that's how it happened. Wow. I don't know. So it wasn't any kind of a normal, tra- tra- nothing really normal trajectory in my life, probably. <laughs> so then you wind up pursuing more and more into... Yeah, you I mean, I went, into, to- went ahead and, and at that point I kind of decided, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go through the journalism program for sure. You know, it was, it was pre-journalism because I had to sort of declare something, I guess. it's I can't remember now exactly how, but so then... Your junior and senior year, you actually enter the journalism school, and I did that, and we did, you know, news writing classes and editing classes and and photojournalism classes, which I, you know, they were what they were. You know, I'd been photographing so much for this newspaper, and and I knew a lot of the stuff. I had already had to teach it kind of to myself, and and uh, and then I end up working for an this little newspaper across town, which at the time was really fantastic newspaper, especially photographically. The director of photography at National Geographic was a staff photographer there, Sarah Lean. When I was there uh, in school, she was working uh, over there. And, and a previous director of photography was also like a, he was the photo editor and designer there, David Griffin. And this is eighteen thousand circulation little newspaper, mm. but was that um, the, it was called the was Columbia that, Daily Tribune? Yeah, was that bigger or smaller than the the college? Because because I know the the college itself must have had a pretty large circulation, well, right? So yeah, the college. The the crazy thing is, so I was I was a photo at the student newspaper, which just for the students, and then the journalism school produced a newspaper for the city of Columbia. Oh, okay. Okay. Also, and that wow. was so. When you're in journalism school, if you're going through that, they have a TV station too, but mm-hmm. which is also for the community. But it it has staff, you know, people who've worked in the business who come back and teach. But then most of the work is done by student journalists. So I can't remember. Maybe we had a fewer. We were, the new the newspaper at the school was at the university was a morning paper, and then the Columbia Tribune, which I went to afterward, and um, that was the evening paper. Mm. But here, in even in the 80s, mm-hmm. I mean, it was already a rare thing. Only a few major cities had two independent newspapers. Right. All the smaller cities, this was long over. And I mean, there was not even a joint operating agreement, which was, you know, a step toward death when you were using the same press. We had completely different yeah. buildings, presses. Let alone um, a morning and an evening edition. Yeah, yeah well, you know, it was... It was yeah. But it was great because the photographers and the writers were so good at this little paper. At one point, they had, I think, for the newspapers, the total budget for the newspaper... They st- they had the highest percentage uh, of that total budget was dedicated toward the editorial department, th- higher than any per- percentage in any other paper in the country. Mm. I mean, it was just they had a Washington correspondent. Wow, 
you know, not its staff, but of course, right. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, but I, I mean, I was making, I think I could, I could have qualified for food stamps, you know, with what they paid me, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was good experience. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So by this time you're, you're hooked on photographing. I yeah. Think. I mean, I was, yeah, I was photographing and, you know, I was a photojournalist, a newspaper photojournalist. I mean, but there was a point uh, where I wanted, I was going to, one day the, the photo editor called me. I had just gone home and he called me back in, said, you know, can, can you just come back to the newspaper? And he was, you know, we were friends. And I said, okay. So I came back in and I said, and there, he and another photographer that I work with were sitting and they had these very solemn looks on their faces. And he said, I just got fired. Mm. And so, you know, I was shocked. It came out of nowhere. And two weeks later, the publisher hired his own daughter oh, to be the new photo editor. Man. And I, yeah. I got, I, I spent a little time with her and I thought, okay, my time here is short. <laughs> this is not going to work out. And, and, you know, people, if they want to fire you, they'll find a way to, to, sure. to justify it. And, you know, I was working hard and trying to do things the way she wanted them, you know, but it, which I didn't think she had very good ideas. Uh, she was not very much of a people person, mm-hmm. in my opinion, in case she's listening. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Maybe she's the opinions expressed by our guests. Yeah. There. <laughs> uh, and I'm not naming names, but anyway, but I just, it, we didn't get along, right? And, uh, and so I quit. Uh, I just said, okay, I'm, I'm leaving. And my last day was the day before, like Christmas Eve. I remember I spent most of that day going around town, giving prints to people who mm. I promised prints to over the years. And, mm. and, uh, and then that was, and I didn't have a plan. I didn't really, uh, know quite what I was going to do next. And I thought, okay, maybe I can move to New York finally. And cause I was subscribing to the village voice at that point for Sylvia Plackey. You know, I love Sylvia Plackey. Mm. It was a big mm. early influence Hmm. And how to do, you know, photojournalism in in a way that was not like most newspaper photographers that I saw, you know. And and New York was fascinating. And then I don't know. Then I got a call from a a guy who I knew of. I had seen some of his work, and he called up, uh, and he said, "Hey." this is Len Lehman. I'm, you know, oh yeah, I know who you are, Len. And he said, so look, I understand you're, um, you're trying to sublet an apartment um, that's really close to the journalism school. And I said, yeah. You know. He said, yeah, well, I'm looking for one because uh, I'm going to take a sabbatical from the San Jose Mercury News and go teach at the journalism school. Hmm. Okay. You know, and, and to, to tell you the truth, they're going to need somebody to replace me. So what ended up happening was we just kind of did this dosey do change places. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I had his company cameras and this old beat up sort of Chrysler that was this company car. You know, I'm suddenly and I'd never really thought of moving to California, hmm. and there I was. Mm. <clears throat> the very first day on the job, the shuttle blew up. Oh, oh man, yeah. it was like the first day on the job. I remember. Yeah, nineteen. 19- 86, 86 January. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, you know, and then he was living in my 
little apartment, you know, and and you know, I mean, this was going to be like six months of work, and I didn't really have a plan beyond that. I I kind of started freelancing there, and then after that was over, and then they hired me back for another year, and then. I started freelancing out there again. I was living in Oakland at that point, mm. kind of the Brooklyn of San Francisco, at least at the time. That's how it felt. I but think they still think that. I way. used to actually call refer to Brooklyn as the Oakland of Manhattan <laughs> when I first came here. Yeah. You know, they're kind of a little, and they probably changed in the same ways that make them a little less like they used to be. Uh, you know, they were sort of more real, less pretentious, and maybe that's changed. But mm-hmm. but anyway, then the Sacramento Bee uh, said they wanted me to work as a temporary. Again, I was kind of getting this reputation or something. So I went up there to the Central Valley of California, which, man, once you go over that hill, it's a different world than oh, the yeah. Bay Area. Very different up there. You know, uh, and I, but they were, I was already there. I was traveling around, uh, doing stuff. And they said, do you want, do you want to work here for reals? You know, and I said, <laughs> uh, you have to move to Sacramento. And, you know, and I remember hemming and hawing. It was like a real job with actual, you know, medical benefits. Yeah. and But, I mean, so, you know, you get these offers, and there's always this sort of, well, I guess, yeah, I'll come out. I'm, did you have an idea, like a plan in mind? Like, did you have a bigger idea in mind? Like, you know, no, ultimately, I want to be doing this. Well, I, I guess I kind of wanted to, you know, it was always in the back of my head to move to New York. And I guess the photographic community here, and it felt, you know, really alive um i just i felt like i could learn a lot from being here but uh i don't know i mean i I really just i wanted i was still trying to figure out what i what i thought i wanted to do was to photograph my way as much as i could for a daily newspaper for one i thought that i liked doing that there were parts of it i really liked there were parts that were really frustrating because i think it there were parts that were, it was sort of impossible to photograph in the way that you wanted to. Like a, an Anhal Franco at the New York Times? Yeah, or have a, you know, a, people like that. Anhal, yeah. you know, I, he, he kind of developed his own. And I thought there were, time, there were photographers at the New York Times. I came to realize once the reproduction got a little bit better, you could actually see the photographs, mm-hmm. you know, instead of just kind of dots on the page. Right. They got... They start using offset printing, and you say, "Oh, yeah, you know, there's actually, you know, there's subtlety here that got lost." That was the thing about newspaper newsprint. Mm-hmm. Often, you know, the pictures that I found that I really liked so much out in the world of photography, not photo newspaper photojournalism. I didn't really wasn't really looking at newspaper photojournalism, but out in the world of photography, you know, Winogrand. Mm-hmm. Cartier-Bresson, you know, the the, the great ones. Uh, Dion Arbus, I thought, was amazing. And and people, you know, at a newspaper, man, you, <laughs> if you were photographing people like Winogrand or Dion Arbus, I mean, man, you would get called into the office. They wouldn't know what to do with it. They'd, they'd, no, they'd, we they'd can't be, use this. They'd be cropping everything to They're them. not smiling. Right, uh, to faces or something. I don't yeah. know. What, well, yeah, or, yeah, with with negative space or, or, <laughs> or you know, the... the details that are 
that really provide so much context and and complexity in a Winogrand photo, you know? Plus, a, lo- a lot of images at the time were coming over the equivalent of a fax machine, right? And well, being the reproduced photos, there. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so it, it actually, it probably, I mean, without a doubt, it actually produced a kind of an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. That's what was the way people ended up photographing it, we call it yeah, the, you know, the, the hand of God printing. And the, you know, the dodged burnt, faces. Yeah, there dodged halos faces, around them. Halos right? with really darkened skies, yeah. burning them down. The hand of God, that's yep. what they called them. Yeah. Lots of potassium ferrocyanide. <laughs> that's right. You know, to bleach those details <laughs> up because they were just lost, you know. Oh, yeah. it, was, it was a great, I mean, the, the, the situation at the Sacramento Bee, they kind of were letting me do things that I wanted to experiment with and learn about. And I think I was the first guy that had ever taken the Hasselblad that the paper owned out of the office. I remember someone said, where are you going with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something might happen to That's a to studio it. camera. <laughs> but, you know, they had all this great equipment. There was a big... Uh, refrigerator full of film, and I had the combination for the lock on the <laughs> door. You know, it is going and yeah, and shoot film, and you know, yeah, and I learned a lot. I, you know, maybe I could have learned it more quickly or better. I mean, in in retrospect, you know, after you know, I I say now that I've had to you know unlearn a lot of bad habits that mm-hmm. I learned in newspaper photojournalism. Um, you know, I don't know if they're really bad habits, but they're... See, I think that every photographer goes through this in some way. I mean, if you're yeah. working at a photographer, there's... I mean, sorry, as a, as a newspaper, there's going to be positive feedback for when you're making the photographs yeah, that are right. that are like the house style or in the style of what they're looking for. Yeah, and, yeah. and you've got an editor who's saying who's saying, oh, these are good and these and, aren't. And then you get more opportunity. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so there's that. Well, if let's say that, so that then you develop you, a vocabulary that goes along with that. And then That's later, a great point. Then later you break away from it. Well, the same thing happens if you're, you might be in art school and you fall in love with Robert Frank or Winogrand or, you know, name any photographer that you might be introduced to mm-hmm. when you're learning photography in art school. And I, I know I if I look back at... Um, I was just down in North Carolina and I, I was pulling through old contact sheets and stuff that I left at my in my mother's house and I can completely see the influence when I was in first year like first years of photographing of trying to mimic a vocabulary of the things that I saw that I wanted to photograph and then the same thing at some point you have to like you bust away from that. And it's like you, a garage band doing covers. Exactly. Rolling yeah. Stone covers, it's, right? Uh, yeah, you got, you're, you're <laughs> learning somehow, right? You got to like, oh, these chords work or whatever. Right, right. The successes and reinforcement. And of course, in the, in the newspaper world, uh, it, it was also uh, eating, <laughs> getting paid to eat because, uh, you know, the more you were able to sort of please an editor, the more photos they, they bought from you, especially if you were a freelancer. Yeah, if you were a freelancer, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah so... Yeah, and then if you were within the structure as a staff photographer, I mean, the people who made, and even the less literate editors, you know, the, the, the people with the glass offices, if they like the photographs, then that's what really mattered, the boss of your boss. Right. And then that, even if good. your boss thought maybe you, I'm not saying that was the case where I was, but it you know, theoretically, right, it's always... Your boss's boss, the, the, you know, if he likes it, hey, yeah. we're going to reward this person because 
It makes the big guy happy. So That's also why those um, photographer sections that were pulled off were not for the timid <laughs> because you had to elbow your way uh, to get uh, the photographs that everybody was trying to get. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, that kind of stuff, that kind of sort of going out and photographing bad things happening or, or, you know, presidential visits where it's just, you know, they called it a gangbang. Oh, yeah. Just, it was, it's awful. Yeah. Hmm. I, I never liked it. Mm-hmm. I mean, always what I wanted to do was to photograph the people photographing it. Really, that's that was my, I always wanted just, and I often found myself doing that, sort of mm-hmm. stepping mm-hmm. back and. Public relations, when it grands. Yeah, yeah I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it just seemed so absurd to me. I felt alienated mm-hmm. by it and that I wasn't a part of it. And maybe I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't a part of it. Mm. Yeah, and for people who maybe never paid attention, when when you watch a press conference and you see the president walk into the room, you can hear yeah all the cameras all the cameras firing at hundreds of shots a a minute. Even still, (laughs) even still, yeah, Yeah. the flashes going off and yeah, and it's just that walk to the podium. There's nothing happening. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I it's you get so little time to. FaceTime with this person, so mm-hmm. you're just yep throwing. Yeah, plus everything. half of them they'll have their eye closed because they're blinking and all that stuff. Yeah, they gotta yeah. Like get around. All they're that. gonna look for something, some expression on their face, something like yeah. that. Yeah. What, what what's your opinion, or how, what do you, how do you feel about, or have you seen? I'm giving you multiple options here <laughs> about the I like uh, about the Alex Soth like that body of work i think it's in the his book songbook i think is the title where yeah. it's, he's he's going out like trying to photograph again because he was also a, a worked at a i like that newspaper. book actually but it, it's definitely that kind of like deadpan kind of uh small town newspaper photographer approach to the world kind of thing yeah it is but it's i mean it it's maybe to me it's also sort of making it his own uh that's that's my feeling from looking at that work, you, you go out and, and you're sort of, I mean, you're sort of looking for stories, but it's not really, uh, I mean, in, in a way, it's it's kind of, you know, sleeping by the Mississippi in a different way, you know, it's, it's the narrative is, is not so rigid, I think, and maybe I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a sense of collaboration, you know, with these photographs, I think, in both cases of those books. Is that similar to how you see the work you've been doing on Instagram with the protests uh, and all? Yeah, I guess. I mean, not. I mean, what I'm looking for there, I guess it's that that maybe is something different. Um, I thought when Trump got elected, I mean, I was shocked, like a lot of people. <laughs> but I, I don't know that I was really surprised, and I. But I think a lot of people were really surprised. Mm-hmm. And um, they couldn't believe it. You know, we had this black president, right? For eight years, we we're sort of post-racial. But as as like non-white people, I talk to say, oh, white people could think it was post-racial, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, still really feeling wasn't. pretty racial. <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not what we were thinking. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so but I, I think you know, I think a lot of people were uh, people I know were pretty traumatized and no one kind of knew what was going to happen and but i could feel that the country was going to change in more 
you know, in in ways that were, we were definitely going toward more sort of authoritarian, more right wing, dominant government, more so than than we had been. I mean, you know, say what you will about Obama. I mean, he still deported. Two, mm-hmm. two, three million people. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, he was. <laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't so uncouth. You know, I mean, <laughs> uh, and he wasn't a narcissist in the any way that more than a lot of standard politicians. Yes, I right. guess he are. had the standard level of uh, narcissism. Of, yeah, I guess, but you know, it's not basically. He, he yeah. had he had a little more complex engagement. He didn't and seem interest. to be a sociopath. Maybe? He didn't seem to be a sociopath. <laughs> um, but so I don't know. I guess I got in. I I just I decided, and I guess um, something I couldn't really talk about before to you guys. Um, so by the time this is all you know you edit out half of all this <laughs> it's super, superfluous i stuff. only edit out kai yeah <laughs> all right yeah. If, you know that's how yeah. i said this superfluous <laughs> part of this yeah. and so uh, this thing has been in the works for about a year i've these belgian guys i know that one of them i've known for a long time asked me if i wanted to be a part of a collective oh, that wow. Great. they are uh and we've been we're basically launching it's going to be kind of a soft launch uh at the uh photojournalism festival in perpignan which is starting it's it opens actually this evening it's probably opening about right now in france Hmm. and uh you know we're going to sort of become a publicly known entity it's called maps m-a-p-s uh you'll be able to use your belgian french again that's Uh, right yeah (laughs) enough the but the who so, came up with the the name? Uh, these the one one or two of the Belgians. They I mean, wanted it to be a an English name, or does that translate? You no, know, they they kind of liked the idea. Mm-hmm. They 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 thought of Mapa. They thought the Spanish one. I thought that sounded pretty cool. But then there's, uh, one of the French guys said, "Look, this is the name of a dishwashing soap. And <laughs> that we just not just we can't. No one will take it seriously in France mm-hmm. with that. They'll be thinking of dishwashing soap." <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I guess it exists, and they know. And I said, "Okay." Um, so it became maps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. But so there was so there's a photo festival in um, in France, another one in Brittany next month, and they talked the directors of that into letting this group uh, produce a body of work, you know, collaborating. Not less collaborating with each other, but collective body of work on the theme of unrest. And my initial idea was to go out and photograph Standing Rock. And there were a lot of photographers out at Standing Rock. And then Trump got elected. And I saw the how everybody I knew in New York was about this, you know. And New York, who, you know, New Yorkers kind of know what the guy's about and voted, you know. There were 18% of the people here in New York actually voted for him versus everybody else he kind of had him already figured out. <laughs> so everybody was I knew was pretty shocked and depressed. And, and I said, okay, I decided I'm going to photograph the resistance to this. And I don't know, 
so I call it Trumpistan, the resistance. <laughs> so that's what I'm just, and that's going the, the these photos are going to be exhibited at this photo reporter festival in San Briuk. But I mean, I I it was something I was interested in photographing anyway. So it was sort of okay. This I feel my country is we're entering this this period that's uh, in some ways unprecedented. You know, for a lot of people out there, I probably their lives aren't very different than they were before. I mean, I think in the long run, they're going to be, if a lot of this agenda gets pushed through, I think that's just going to drive the wealth even more into the hands of fewer people. But, but you know, I think people were, people are, in the and this this sort of nationalism and racism that's now being openly displayed, I think that's come as a real shock to people. And but and so I'm sort of looking at faces and looking for that in the faces of the people who are out there. You know that because uh, I mean I'm interested in individual faces within crowds. You know because. What is a group, and you know, like just even this collective that I'm in, because I'm never, I've never really been a joiner of <laughs> things. I guess I mean, well, I mean, I was on a team, I guess, in France, but it wasn't anything anyone I knew was doing. But a group, uh, a mass movement, is lots of individuals making a decision to become a part of it, and people finding the time to go out and demonstrate in the street or people not only i mean the people who felt feel compelled to do it to go out and uh, raise their voices publicly but so i'm 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 looking at faces out there people trying to find solidarity with other people around them because i think the way that people who want power i mean they they have power over us by by driving us apart from each other, and that's how it works. You create an enemy for someone, and then an enemy. It's a very response deep in in you for survival. You have to oppose this person who's somehow become a threat to you. You know whether that's real or not, but the perception is created, and then so I'm. Looking for people, find, try, looking for some kind of solidarity uh, to stand up against this. You know, it's the most powerful office in the land. Who's in? It's in the hands of a man I consider a sociopath right now, a narcissistic sociopath. I mean, those are opinions. Opinions expressed are <laughs> not mine alone. In this case, probably. And so this. Um this work that you are doing, will that be part of this collective then? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's their, our first collective project, um, and other people are photographing other things. Um. Actually, it's pretty interesting, right? I mean, you, you have this collective, and, and so you could you have sort of what's going on here. Then there's Brexit, and then there's there were the elections in France. Or, and, or even things yeah. that you may not even know about mm-hmm. that, that are out there. Um, a, a friend of mine... Um, has photograph has gone to photograph this in Lima, Peru, which I was not aware. There's a a wall that was built basically on, 
my understanding is it was started about the time the Berlin Wall was falling down, but it was modeled after the Berlin Wall, and it sort of separates wealth from mm. um, poverty. And it's kilometers long through the city of Lima, and you know you have million dollar houses on one side, and then you have like a practically a shanty town on the other. Mm. That's probably. Uh doorways or paths for people who work uh yeah, on one probably. side and then get home on the I other side i mean look at right? and look at look at right, right now in palestine i mm-hmm. mean you have uh, and mm-hmm. i think there's there's a lot of that in south america i believe mm-hmm. you know venezuela there's yeah, yeah it's like it's a lot of oh, this, another country that's uh yeah right. there's a lot of these well, like, well, i mean right. look at the gated communities here yeah. i mm-hmm. mean i think that there's there's i mean it's not something necessarily new but i think it the way it maybe the way it is now is more it's existing in ways that hasn't before and it's visually it's pretty interesting i mean speaking as a photographer to to when you can see this and i think what photography maybe allows us to look at you know because of the way we as photographers choose to frame something and you know when you expose something the light the the aesthetic just it can make us look at what we're seeing around us all the time. We, you know, you look at it in a way that you can understand it in more depth mm-hmm. or in a way that you hadn't before. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. fresh eyes and yeah. seeing things sometimes for the first time in a way because it's being focused for you. Isn't that what you guys, when you're photographing, you want to... You know, you go to some place, and maybe you've been there a hundred times before. But you say, "What is it about this place? I'm feeling something, but I'm not seeing it. Why am I feeling this?" I think um, so. Initial reactions are always, um, I think, very important to experiencing a place when you're trying to photograph yeah, it. Right? Yeah. There's a sort of level of energy and excitement uh, you just respond that, to that you respond to, and then after a while you get to know certain neighborhoods or certain areas that you tend to go back to or start at when you go out photographing yeah. and things like that. And then, so you, you no longer have that, that initial energy photographing. And then the place starts to be, become uh, something a little different, I think, after that. Uh, then, then it's a matter of, well, is, it, um, is what you're looking for really here? Because um, you know it now. And yeah. so you, you, you want to be careful you're not making the same photographs over and over again. I think John was speaking just to the struggle to try to communicate something through, you know, that's, I think, all in in the arts. Yeah. If there's, you know, you have an experience, the artist has an experience, and they're trying to find a way using the whatever medium they're using to mediate that experience so that someone else, when they look at it, can, you know, can have that can have that same connection and experience that the artist was having. And so... With photography, you've got all the tools of you know how you uh, everything you were mentioning about framing and the light, and you've got mm-hmm. all of that at your disposal to try to make it so someone's not just going, oh yeah, there's a picture of a person, but they're getting across what it meant to you, right? The, yes, that that, but also, I mean, I think the magic part about art is that even everybody who wasn't there making a photograph this who was going to look at the photograph that's made i mean they're going to experience it in their own unique way and that's something that you could never quite understand yourself as the photographer but 
I think it's a wonderful thing that, that somehow something that you've chosen and, and you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think that people need to feel exactly what I'm feeling. I want them to feel something. Yeah, no, I don't mean exactly the same I, yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I know you're providing. I know you you're providing. I guess that's what comes through this idea of providing an artistic experience, right? So you can watch a TV commercial and be entertained and yeah. this, but it's probably not going to provoke, you know, a deep existential thoughts about life, the universe, and everything. And uh, whereas you might, you know, if it's at the right time in your life, you might come upon a short story or a poem yeah. or a photograph where. It has, you know, very deep repercussions. And of course, it's very unlikely. It's the same as what the photographer or the poet was right, feeling. Right, but yeah. because because they were struggling to try to get something like that across, it's possible for you to have that, that, that artistic experience in front of whatever this is. You've... You've had this sort of a humanism in your photography and a bit of social justice in your photography from very early on. I mean, looking at your website and you have No Agua No Vida and the Nevada Project and the, yeah. from Somalia and the, um, and some others. And, and some of that, I think being a photojournalist, there's always a little bit of a, of a social justice, uh, maybe a lot of a social justice idea when you're, you know, you're photographing conflicts or you're photographing injustices yeah. and things like that. But did that come to you? Do you think you had that earlier on? I mean, how, um, you came out of uh, Missouri, you said, <laughs> and uh, were you I raised came... with uh, an idea of social justice or? Yeah, I don't know. Yes and no. I mean, I think my parents are very still not particularly political people i mean but politics aside uh, i mean yeah. personally personal politics i mean i think that my parents are very compassionate people and they're always trying to help other people were they religious were yeah they, i mean they're yeah. religious in a very sort of unassuming way you know mm -hmm. they're uh they're not proselytizing and that it's, it's pretty hardcore christian uh, evangelical uh territory where i'm from mm -hmm. very much Bible Belt, World Headquarters of the Assemblies of God is there, the Pentecostal, you know, evangelicals. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, they weren't like that. I, and I, But they, they're still always trying to help people. I mean, my mom is 86 years old now and still doing things, trying to help people out, you know, taking people places, I mean, taking them to appointments and, you know, trying to smooth the road for people who have had a difficult way and i think i got some of that from her um i i i meant I've, I've been interested in experiences that are not my own to try to understand them because i also i think you can definitely understand more about yourself and what made it motivates you trying to just making an attempt to understand someone else's experience Probably those early experiences of even living out of the country and all that, that the, I, when we get in a, like when we're in our comfort zone and there's so much about, at least in this country, there's so much about your living environment that's sort of designed to, you know, be comforting and not make you think about things other than your, what's immediately around you, you know, mm -hmm. your family unit, your circle of friends, what you're doing at your job. And, uh, anytime you get an experience where that's shaken up, it's going to, it's going to 
make you more empathetic with, about and or at least more aware of that there's other people living other types of lives and these things are affecting us you know yeah so you know we we were joking that you were going to be the most mature one coming into college <laughs> after living and you know living over there in france and everything but uh, certainly when i was looking at your website earlier and seeing those uh, photographs from somalia in 1992 like i can't imagine being in a position to be surrounded by seeing that and not having it, you know. No, it's profoundly affecting for me. I mean, I'm still really disturbed by the notion that I could come out of my life, which was not not living an extravagant life, uh, by the standards of people around me and... California, I mean, I was living a pretty simple life, but still, it was absolutely extravagant to come people, people who had been living, they were either, so many of these people I, I, I was running into had been, you know, rural people who had been, uh, their crops had been burned, they'd been driven off their land, and they, you know, they didn't have much of anything and suddenly with and they didn't have cars or anything so they're walking hundreds of miles trying to get to some place where there's food and and safety you know but there are armed militias going through the countryside when after Mohammed Siabari was overthrown in Somalia you know that there was this power vacuum that that people were trying to uh, fill and you know that it it came People who wanted to have power were exploiting ancient clan ties to drive people apart, and and seeing that firsthand. Yeah, seeing that firsthand, and then so I guess you know here I am. I'm coming from this safe uh, place where I don't have to worry about where I'm going to eat, uh, and sort of dropping in from the other part of the world into this reality that other people are going are existing in and dying in in front of my eyes in front of my eyes starving or dying from gunshot wounds i saw a baby with a abdominal gunshot wound die in a hospital in front of me i mean it was a toddler you know two three-year-old and then you leave and go back and you know i remember going back and it was really it felt insane I mean, they, I guess soldiers have this experience uh, all the time, um, or maybe refugees who somehow are out on a raft and they could very easily die, uh, but somehow they survive and they make it to some place where it's safe. Maybe people don't like them there, but they look around and these people are walking around freely. They're, they have food to eat. And it must seem insane that that this all exists all the time around us in the world, that there are people living parallel lives, some of absolute desperation, some of absolute affluence and almost boredom with affluence. And yeah, Yeah, this idea of the global community and everyone's on the Internet now and has cell phones and all these things. But in but the reality is that there's so many. It's like the majority of the world is not. Yeah, it's part of that. It's impossible to to get to wrap (laughs) your brains around it. And and I don't know how much it's we're really understanding each other, even though we're, you know, theoretically connected. Yeah. So that was in 92. And then. 
just five years later, you had a very different experience. Yeah. Where, uh, whereas here in the United we're, States, we're yeah. talking about violence at a distance and, and being a witness to it. And then all of a sudden, a very personal narrative while you were at the Sacramento Bee yeah. came, came and brought it home, right? Yeah. Uh, and I was just out photographing. And uh, it was, um, I was off that weekend. I remember sometimes we worked weekends, you know, we all sort of rotated shifts. And I was on an evening shift that day. I think I came into the office about three in the afternoon, like three to 11 shift. And I came into the office and it was a Monday. There had been a skeleton staff over the weekend, of course. And they were worried about just putting out that newspaper. Then really made many plans for stories for the rest of the week. And so the photo editor came and I uh, came in and said, Dad, we don't have any thing for you to photograph but we need a paper a picture for the paper tomorrow for the section b front you know just go out and see what you can find and i guess that's kind of a great thing you know if you go out and see what you can find i mean it's still it's got to be kind of a certain kind of picture in in the editor's mind Hmm. you know nevertheless i always felt i would typically when i was told i could do that i would drive into some uh neighborhood often I would decide I would just go into a place, and sometimes it would be a few blocks apart, but someplace maybe I hadn't been before, or maybe I'd been, I wanted to have another look at it, so I walked into this, I drove in, parked my car, and started walking in this neighborhood, and it was, um, I don't know, I encountered a few people, there were a lot of kids out at the school, it was the, like the second day of spring, and I was... Um, and there were just a lot of people on the street, which, you know, in a lot of places in California, everybody's in their cars, and they don't engage each other on the street very much. And so that made it less likely, you know, it makes certain kind of pictures more likely, and pictures of people on the street are less likely. But this this was a neighborhood where um, there were people were just out. And uh, I've... I don't know. So the night, the day before, I'd actually been on a long bike ride up into the Sierra Nevada foothills. I thought it was like a 75-mile bike ride. And uh, finished. I had a puncture right near the end and took me, I don't know, I had somehow the, the spare tube. Maybe I hadn't, maybe I had a hole in it and I had forgotten to re, repatch <laughs> it. Anyway, so I had, it took a little longer to get the tire repaired, so... I finished kind of in, you know, it was starting to get dark. And I had driven up to a point and parked my car, and I was riding back to my car. And there I was, and I remember seeing on one side of the sky was the beginning of a lunar eclipse. Hmm. And on the other side of the sky was the Hale-Bopp comet. Oh, wow. You know, if there weren't two more ancient, hmm. you know, astronomical events that were portending a disaster you know in the same night but anyway the next day i'm i'm out walking around this oak park neighborhood in sacramento and um remember stopping to talk to some woman um and i asked her why she had these rocks she was sitting in a, on a little folding chair on her in front of her house with these rocks next to her i said what are you doing she said oh these cars they come by too fast i throw a rock at them because my kids are out here, and I said, well, hmm. So, well, you know, maybe th- there had been a new city councilwoman and elected neighbors. Why don't you call her office and see if I can get some 
you know, speed bumps. You ought to have speed bumps on the streets. Talk to her, you know. I mean, that makes total sense. And that way you can't always be out here, you know. And that way the speed bumps will be there permanently. She says, yeah, that's a good idea. And, uh, you know, anyway, I had a good talk with her, and I kept going. And ended up in this park, and, I don't know, there were some kids kind of playing. And I really wasn't out looking for a kid picture, but I asked these women that, you know, do you mind if I photograph? They were watching the kids, and they said, sure. Made a few pictures, saw something out of the corner of my eye, and and say goodbye to them and start walking over toward whatever that was. And then a woman sort of appeared out of nowhere who seemed to be pretty high on something, just angry. And, and I remember her blouse was kind of falling off one shoulder and telling me to give me give her my film. And I was photographing her kids without her permission. I said, well, wait a minute, what... Where did you come from? Who are your kids? I, you know, the only kids I photograph, these women are watching them. And and I don't remember even how I ended it with her. Um, but I just told her, I remember telling her, I can't give you the film. It actually belongs to the newspaper. But if you can tell me who you're talking about, I promise you I won't have any pictures of those kids in the paper. And she's she, yelling, I think. She's yelling at me. She's she's angry. and But she wouldn't make that clear and I you know, I, you know the one thing about being in the middle of a civil war in Somalia at the time you kind of maybe it completely skewed my sense of what was dangerous and I didn't I remember um, we had these two-way radios and my buddy my first friend in California Jose Luis Viegas who we worked together in San Jose and then later in Sacramento and he was out looking for a picture. I said, hey, man, um, you know, I looked at my watch and I said, we, time's up. I got to go back. It's done here in this neighborhood anyway. There's this crazy lady who's yelling at me. And so I started walking back to my car. I wasn't, you know, I didn't feel in any kind of danger. But, but I don't really remember anything. You know, I just remember little flashes of memory after that. What happened, I guess, on the... I. I stopped and spoke to this woman, the Rockthorn lady, again, on the way back to my car. And at the point where I was near her, five juveniles came up and surrounded me. And then I remember this green Chevy pulling up, screeching to a halt that I had actually seen uh, careening around the neighborhood a little earlier. And I thought, wow, it's that car again. And this guy got out, and he storms directly at me, screaming for my film and my camera. And then he just hit me. And then apparently, you know, I remember being hit, but apparently I, he pounded me up against this chain-link fence in front of the lady's house, and... I went down on the sidewalk, and the juveniles, you know, started kicking me and jumping on me. And I mean, somebody was jumping on my head, and uh, sort of left me there bleeding. And uh, ambulance showed up, took me to the hospital, and you know, uh, that that was 
it. I mean, that was my last day ever working at the Sacramento Bee. And uh, I had a traumatic brain injury. I don't really remember. I remember a couple of little flashes of memory from the hospital. And then I, I was in this brain injury rehab place. And that's when memories started sticking together in any way, to, like there was any kind of continuum. You know, it's it was all kind of dreamlike, you know, things were just unrelated and, you know, I was experiencing things and I didn't know, they didn't have any uh, continuity, there was no... Sort of like a stream of images, but... They, yeah, they didn't know if I had already... I didn't even have a sense of time, you know, um, and I'm looking for a very obvious word here, and this is my <laughs> my brain. I can't think of it, but I couldn't. I couldn't remember. So I ended up. Yeah, I didn't even understand at first that these people were making me do therapy. The people kept making me do things with, with like because my eye was wandering around my left eye. I couldn't walk. Uh, I didn't. You know, my balance had been sort of completely disrupted by the damage to the brain and. And my speech therapist, I came to understand I had a speech therapist. You know, I didn't even know what these people were doing. I kept thinking they kept testing me over and over, but it was therapy. Right. And then I started to understand, okay, it's therapy. And I, there's some, I didn't even know why I was there. I, or where you were, probably. I, yeah, or where I was. And, and, you know, I started getting cards and letters, and people were talking about this horrible thing, you know, that had gotten on the Associated Press Newswire, and they're, you know, reading it in different parts of the country. I had no idea this is so terrible. And I didn't, you know, I remember this guy hitting me, but it didn't make sense. It took a while for it to make sense that they were talking about that that's what had happened. Yeah, I didn't know. And finally, I saw a picture of myself that the police had taken in the hospital you know after they cleaned me up and you know I was an absolute mess and it struck me wow this this is me this has really happened to me and uh so anyway that I couldn't really photograph someone had brought my camera to me apparently I asked for it and then I asked someone there you know can can you have someone bring me my camera well someone's already brought it we have it here locked away for you mm. you don't remember that no i don't and and i took a few pictures it was this mamiya six you know a six by six camera like a texas leica you know right. and uh that i was very very comfortable with using this camera i'd used it a lot and i but i you know looking back at the pictures i took i didn't have the energy and i was having trouble using it and then I got out. I lived in this place for two and a half months and then got out. And you know, I couldn't live by myself at first. I stayed with some friends because I was living alone out there. And uh, and then my speech therapist, who I continued to see kind of as a day client, they could never call us patients. We were clients. Mm. And so, um, she said, you know, I want you to take some pictures again. Okay. So, well, what do you think you want to take pictures of? And I thought about it, and I thought, you know, the biggest thing that happened is I found my entire life changed. I'm living in this rehab place, and I kind of wanted to try and understand what had happened to me. So 
and it, it also it it took eight months to they they arrested the the adult the guy who got out of the car they arrested him on a murder charge that happened later in the same week and the juveniles though everybody was too terrified because it was a street gang related and they were too terrified to test you know to witness and uh finally like some eight-year-old girl's testimony got taken from her mom by child protective services and she pretty much named all the names mm. and uh mm. they arrested these guys and then people turned evidence evidence against each other and mm. yeah one of them was only 14 years old as two of them were 13 13 mm-hmm. wow. yeah. yeah and i mean they're trying to show this adult how violent they could be i guess so i anyway so i i felt safe very few of my friends even knew where i was I mean, they wanted the cops and the DA wanted this very. It was not public at at the newspaper where I was. They just knew I was in rehab somewhere. That was to protect you. To protect me, yeah. yeah. And uh, so the place felt safe. You know, I knew that, and 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 I could. So I decided I was going to go out and start photographing. And and you know, my speech therapist said, "So what do you think? A couple of weeks, maybe?" And you know, I said, oh, I don't know, you know. So I went out there, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to photograph, and I'm, one thing after you've had a brain injury, you're exhausted all the time. And I would fall asleep, you know. I would just say, i got to lie down. And, you know, it was safe to do that there. The staff was all, they didn't see me go through, <laughs> like, falling asleep in my out therapy. In the yard. Oh. <laughs> you know, the, so it was, it felt, you know, it was, oh, it's John's tired, so he's just falling asleep, and... But, you know, this is, it felt like, in a lot of ways, the most natural place to sort of learn to be a photographer again, in a way, and, and to photograph. And I didn't even really understand. It, it was like it took a year or so of doing this before I got it around my brain that I was really just photographing my own experience. I mean, everything I was photographing was stuff that had been happening to me when I was there, and... I spent a lot more time photographing than I had spent as a resident, but you know, I wanted to try to describe what it was like. I mean, partially so I could understand it, mainly so I could understand it. Really, I didn't know what I was going to do with any of these pictures and that anybody. I just wanted to make them. And this work be- becomes the the burden of memory. Yeah, um, which is something I remember. People brought me some books, you know, and I was it was from a book by it was a, from a book called About Looking by John Berger. Photography relieves us of the burden of memory. It surveys for us like God <laughs> and my memory. <laughs> <laughs> the burden on top of us, I can't remember the rest of it. With the loss of memory, the continuities of meaning and judgment are also lost to us. The cameras relieves us to the burden of memory. It surveys us like God, yes. and it surveys for us. Yeah. And I had the web- website up. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, the, but that, I don't know, and it just jumped out at me at the time. I mean, any time I was seeing the word memory, because I started to understand, you know, that everything, my our understanding of everything that we're, you know, you guys, I, don't know, I mean, I'm making assumptions here, but you guys know how you got here today. 
but for for me and other people who've gone through this at the time, I mean, you're here. You know, I would be here, and I wouldn't even remember the morning. I didn't know how here here I am. It's, so it's just sort of walking around, totally in the present. You know, you're not really you can't really imagine the future, and and you can't remember even the near you know the the distant past the pre-injury stuff was very much there but it felt like being reincarnated in a way when they would take me in from this place sierra gates this this brain injury had place which is kind of out in the country a little bit and they take me into sacramento for where i had been living the whole time into the center of the city to places it felt like I know this place, but it's not from this life that I'm living in now. This is like if it's from a previous life. Mm. I felt totally disconnected from all these things that I remembered and knew. Mm. It was a to- I was living a completely different life. And maybe and I knew photography was a part of it. I mean, I'd been attacked because I was a photographer, really, and what that meant to these people in the neighborhood, I guess, the, the criminals anyway. And it was funny because in the cops, these guys didn't take my cameras and they didn't take my film. And they just sort of left me to die, I guess. And so they, I, the newspaper, I processed the photos and gave oh. the cops the, the, you know, contact sheets. And, and here for the cops, this is kind of unusual. I mean, you have like a, a photographic record of people I'd encountered and you know, like where I'd, I'd been in the neighborhood. I mean, here, again, it's like a completely different experience of my photographic process, such as it was for going out and trying to take a picture for the newspaper to fill a space. I, I remember seeing a picture that that eventually they the newspaper published, and it was, you know, it was nothing. It was a nothing photograph. And I think they didn't want, they couldn't run certain pictures. But I remember saying, that, that's it, that's, I almost died for that. Mm. You know, that, that this, it's a nothing photograph. And this, you know, that's how I would have been remembered is that he died to make a really nothing <laughs> photograph. Right. You know, you think you live your life as a photographer. Ideally, right, your greatest photograph would be your last one, or at least on that one take or you know but then but, of course you get to see those photographs and you probably had no memory of that as well, well right? eventually you know months and months later i finally got shown the contact sheets and i thought well there are a couple better pictures than what they used and they <laughs> but apparently they couldn't but you know the cops need the cops are looking at these photographs they don't care about my aesthetic right, failure identify that people. day right, as no. a photographer they, no. it doesn't matter to them <laughs> they are just looking at it as an evidence. So what does photography mean you know, to different people? I mean, I, And you uh, mentioned earlier that you saw a photograph of yourself in the hospital, so you were photographed as evidence. By yeah. the police, yeah. By the police, right? Um, I mean, that was pretty meaningful to you. I think, yeah. yeah, it's pretty yeah. crazy. And there's video. I, th- there was a newscast. They, someone told me, oh, they, they have this news update of the night of the Academy Awards that year, and... They said, yeah, and they, they were talking. You know, they come in with this news update in the Academy Awards. They're hmm. outside the hospital with you in it. And I said, they, they, about why? You know, what happened? Really? What mm. happened? I remember being hit by this guy, but, you know, I don't remember 
Were they talking to you, or were they talking to the no, nurses? No, they, they, you know, they, they were just standing up, oh, okay. because that's how it is. You know, right, Unless yeah. you're standing there At holding the a microphone, it's not right. real. Yeah, yeah. But no hospital administrators or no, anything like that? No, okay, you yeah. know, I mean, yeah. it, it's just, you know, how do you process this in your life? Uh, uh, I mean, people all the time, while we've been talking, in America, in New York City, something, you know, that's going to change somebody's life for the rest of their life has happened and how do you process that when it 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 knocks you into a completely different trajectory Mm -hmm. and i'm a photographer and and was almost killed for being a photographer as it turned out you know i I, and as you say in in what was a banal circumstances you know not not in somalia not here yeah it wasn't I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a, in a way. I heard I heard the story from uh, Tom Roma told me the story, uh, and uh, it's something that when I hear I, I teach photo two this semester, where students usually wind up working on projects, and every once in a while someone says, "Oh well, you know, there's like children's playground area on Riverside Park." I'm thinking going and photographing and stuff, and it's like you you really do have to be aware that some people can overreact circumstances can just spiral yeah, I mean, out but and I, you don't I had know. I had talked to these women who were watching the kids and it, you know it's someone who wasn't there sort of just arrived who was high and yeah and and you know and involved in criminal activity in some way and you know they you can do your due diligence and still it just turned out to be the way that I tried to make sense of this. You know, I don't know that I really ever have made any sense of it, but it, again, my life felt like it was out of control and it was, it really was out of my, you know, going through the criminal justice system, the process, even as the victim or the, it's, it's just this entity and sweeps you up in it. And things become a public record about your life. And there's a jury and a judge and people make decisions based on how that's presented. And, you know, here at least I could photograph out at Sierra Gates and I can put things into rectangular spaces, two-dimensional spaces that I... And I'm photographing things and I can look at the contact sheets later and say, okay, I, I, I... I didn't just I didn't dream that that actually happened. There's real evidence on film that this was something I actually experienced. And so it 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 served as an apparatus of some kind of a memory for me and it yeah, literal memento. Literally. Yeah. And and it also you know tr- trying to express what it meant. I was very much involved in even though i guess i was photographing my own experience i mean i could under i could empathize in such a way with people who i knew they had been living normal lives when i was going through this they came in after i did and you know they had this because this some catastrophe had happened you know a car wreck or an assault or something and it changed their lives I, i could see them going through something like what I had gone through, and I, I could feel it in a way that I'd never really felt before. It, it was my experience. They were living it. And they felt, you know, a camaraderie with me in a way. They were all interested in what happened 
Right. Yeah. You know, so how, what's and what it like? might happen to them? Yeah. What's yeah. it like? Like a year after your injury, and because yeah. none of us really know. And yeah, so I did that until I pretty much photographed through the end of the trial. And uh, we're going to link to it, but you gave a, a great lecture for the SVA Masters in Digital Photography earlier this year, and you do a slideshow where you show uh, frames from from those rolls of film and that's like in the in the lecture I recall. yeah i think there's i put together some video for something once and i yeah. and it's for all the, you mean all the f- the frames that i shot out on the street that day yeah yeah i kind of just went talk. through it and how mundane they actually yeah. were you know so people mm. can go watch that right of course they, after they finish listening to this because they also put they put those um um lectures on is it youtube yeah, or yeah on it's website? on youtube yeah yep, yeah absolutely we'll link to it yeah. There, that's a plug for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, did, did I read somewhere or, or hear you mention at one point that this this work is um, being moved forward, possibly as a book? Well, yeah, I mean, I've got a dummy, mm-hmm. and and it's I've had it for a while now, and and I don't. It's a great title. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I've got the. It was really hard for me to try and bring the violence, you know, and the there was so much. There's all this evidence, police evidence, and you know the the DA after the trials are over. I mean, five years later, it's, I I was in touch with the guy for some years, and he uh, who's said, that? the 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 assistant DA who prosecuted hmm. this case, and he said, here, you know, we can't keep this forever. Do you want any of this stuff? And I said, yeah, you know, and so there are evidence, photos, and mm. I mean, it's just stuff that's kind of meaningless to me. I mean, a bunch of houses, some cars. You know, really, just is that how you wound up with the clothes, having getting access well, to the, the clothes, clothes you were wearing? Well, the clothes that they gave them back to me after the trial. Yeah, you know, there's they must have been evidence. Gross. Right? Yeah, there's a grocery bag with it's a biohazard on it, and that was the first time I saw the clothes. And they showed me the hat that I was wearing the day it was a sunny day, and whenever I'm out working in the neighborhood, I had a hat that said Sacramento Bee on it. <laughs> so I just wore it, you know, so people knew. I'm a, I work for the newspaper. I had my press credential around my neck. I wanted to be very, you know, have people would understand, okay, that's the newspaper guy. He's just, for whatever crazy reason, he's out photographing us. But anyway, so I got all that stuff back afterward, and, you know, the EMTs, they show up, the first thing you do is start cutting this. Or, sure. or maybe it was the emergency room. You know, they just cut this stuff off. So the, the trousers were, you know, the jeans that were split right down the sides by some, you know, scissors or whatever. They just cut them off. And there they were in this bag. And I I tried to photograph them. And, you know, it's just part of this process to... Mm-hmm. So uh, some so, of these things would be sort of artifacts in the yeah. I mean, so, I, so I've got that, and then and I've got, but it was the hardest thing to try and because then I had all these pictures that were really, you know, very photographed in a very certain way, almost entirely within, you know, what had once been a kind of a big ranch house with super wide doors, so it was wheel wheelchair accessible. So it got turned into this rehab mm. uh, place, and that's the Sierra Gates. And but they're very different than you know the pictures from the crime scene, the neighborhood, the other things that I photographed. A few things afterward, um, and how I 
I kind of figured out a way to make those, to put those together. But then, I don't know, it, I never was, I've, I haven't been happy with the ending of it. And I be, I've been thinking about how I never thought I would be making any more pictures, but I guess I need to, I know a, that I need to take a few more pictures that is, even is would address why it's taken so long to to make a document of this um, something that reveals the this time even that is the passed. time that's passed yeah. and and that relates to the other pictures and that they will look a little different too and I haven't been happy yet with what I've done but I've it's just a matter of doing it the problem I think is for me has been it's not a very happy place to go to. You know, I was really, I was profoundly depressed and traumatized for a few years at, around that, and and you know to go to go into that. Whenever I go into it, it still kind of brings me into that experience, and it, so it's it's difficult to to do, and I. I find reasons not to go there. And, I could see and another that. week yeah. passes by and I haven't made pictures I I know I need to make, but I think I avoid it. Mm-hmm. And I kind of part of what maybe I'm I'm afraid of what I'm gonna discover just by trying to make the pictures. Uh but I need to discover it whatever it is. I think maybe it'll be it'll make me understand this still in a little more profound way what what happened mm. you know it never really goes away it's there every day uh, that kind of trauma and and it, i think a lot now i look around me on the streets and i see people and there's so many people carrying so much that we have no idea about and maybe uh, i'm maybe more compassionate Knowing, you know, having gone through something like that, I think that we do need to show more compassion to each other. Uh, I think that's a a nice note to uh, end on. Okay. Yeah. We're glad you're here and still photographing. And uh, you can see a a lot more of your work on johntrotterphoto.com, which we'll link to. Okay. Not not johntrotterphotography.com. That's that's another guy. And then there's (laughs) johntrotter.com. What is that, a wedding photographer or something? No, (laughs) johntrotter.com is somebody else. And there's johntrotterphotography.com. But um, we know you... uh, you left your girlfriend in the Hungarian bakery uh, before we started recording here, so she's either um, pastry eating, shop, eating yeah. an entire Swiss roll or. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know. I told her go, go go across that little park and do some reading. Right. You know, she's she's reading Tana E. C. Coates' book. So. Right. Oh yeah. Well, well thank that's... you, thank you for coming. Okay. Yeah. All John, right. great having you here today. It's great talking to you guys. Yeah. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm, it's an honor. Absolutely. No, it's our honor. So, uh, bye, everyone. See you, everybody. Bye.